Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and welcome to The Communication Architect. For the last two decades, I've had the privilege of working with thousands of people from all generations, helping them develop effective communication strategies. In each episode, I'll be sharing content that will empower you to grow in your personal leadership capacity by using strategic communication that will build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, familial, and organizational communication, connecting with stories of transformation that I hope will inspire you to deeper levels of personal and social change. Now, I grew up in a home that did not model effective communication or relational resilience or emotional health, but through my PhD studies, I discovered some fascinating tips and tools that helped me to take my internal and external communication to the next level. I hope you'll find freedom and empowerment in the strategic process of communication as we analyze research findings and testimonies of transformation. In episode one, The Capacity for Change, we'll talk about the incredible design of the human brain, creating a foundation for the development of new competencies and patterns that will build the scaffolding we need to become a communication architect. Let's jump right in. There's an old story about a construction worker who was walking along the beams of a city skyscraper one evening as he completed his shift. Most of his co-workers had gone home and he found himself alone on the steel girders, suspended hundreds of feet in the air. As he walked along in the near darkness, the unthinkable happened. He suddenly lost his footing and felt himself begin to fall. As gravity took over, he instinctively thrust out his hands and grasped desperately onto one of the steel girders, wrapping his fingers tightly around it. He shouted and shouted for help, but the frantic sounds of the rushing city below him drowned out his cries. His whole life flashed before his eyes, and he called out angrily to God, Where are you? Why have you left me here alone? One by one, his fingers grew tired, and he finally felt he couldn't hold on any longer. As his last finger released its grip on the girder, the worker let out a terrifying scream as he fell. Six inches where his feet landed firmly on the huge steel girder that had been beneath him the whole time. Now, maybe you feel a little bit like that construction worker right now. Maybe you've climbed to the top of the mountain and looked out at the landscape of your life, only to discover that your past is littered with painful memories, words, and deeds that have left scars on your soul. Maybe you felt like you're clinging to a steel girder alone in the darkness, keenly aware of those powers of gravity. I understand that feeling. And I want to help you step out safely and securely onto the steel girder that is beneath your feet at this very moment. I applaud your willingness to go deeper into strategic communication and its ultimate harvest, resilient relationships and emotional health. This podcast will help you move past the shoreline and into the deeper waters of healing and hope. That takes courage, and I'm honored to be part of the process with you. An early American psychologist, Carl Rogers, tells a story from his childhood that I think serves as a powerful metaphor for where I came from. Maybe you can relate. Rogers went down into his cold Midwest basement in the middle of a winter one time and found a forgotten sack of potatoes. What do potatoes do when they're left alone in your pantry or your basement? They sprout. Despite the cold basement environment, the potatoes were growing little anemic offshoots that pushed upward toward the only source of light available, a tiny basement window. Shriveled and colorless, the offshoots were, as Rogers put it, life's desperate attempts to become itself, to reach its potential. 
Like those potatoes, maybe you've grown up in a cold, dark environment where you lack the basic ingredients needed for healthy emotional and spiritual development. The words spoken over you may have caused pain or fear or hopelessness, but when you look closely at the outer shell of your life, you might see a number of anemic offshoots, attempts you've made throughout your life at becoming. You see, within you exists a drive that is connected to something much bigger, much greater than you ever could have imagined. And sometimes personal growth means pruning off those anemic offshoots to make room for transformation. Like maybe you did, I grew up in a basement environment lacking the essential nourishment I needed as a child and a teenager. My mom left our family when I was a little girl and I grew up with this emptiness inside of me, this profound sense of rejection and worthlessness. When my husband and I first met in college, we were both very broken people, but God planted us in a church that taught us discipleship and placed us in strategic relationships where we could develop some of the tools we needed to rebuild our communication foundations. During these podcasts, I spend some time on the scientific perspective, and before you wonder if that will be boring, let me tell you the rationale. Understanding the vessel helps us gain a better sense of both the calling of the vessel and the creator of the vessel. Where there's wiring, there's an electrician. Where there's art, there's an artist. Where there's a blueprint, there's an architect. And that architect has been laying out plans for you since before you were born. That's not just a clever, poetic utterance. Psalm 139 tells us that God knit us together in our mother's womb with the full knowledge of our calling, our destiny, that every day ordained for us was written in his book before one of them came to be. God has great plans for you, and he is calling you to play an active role in the transformative process. How do we do that? To answer that question, I want to spend some time envisioning you about the marvelous matter resident within your skull, your brain. The term communication is extraordinarily broad. It encompasses how we talk to our friends, interpersonal communication, how we talk to our work colleagues, organizational communication, how we talk to those we're related to, familial communication, and how we talk to ourselves, interpersonal communication. This last one is really the base for everything else because if our self-talk is negative or incorrectly focused, that will color our communication in the other three arenas. Now, communication also includes visual and nonverbal messages, but in this podcast, we'll talk Talk primarily about verbal communication in these four spheres. The average human speaks between 7,000 and 20,000 words a day. There's great disagreement on whether it's true that women actually speak 13,000 more words a day than men, and a few small sample studies have attempted to disprove that theory. But either way, both men and women are sending a whole lot of words out into the airwaves each day. Does it really matter who speaks more, men or women? Not really, but let's unpack some potential differences for the fun of it. Researchers at Oxford University were the first to discuss the language protein or the language gene, FOXP2, and women's brains actually have this protein in higher levels. The protein is correlated in animal studies to higher levels of chatter. I know that sounds crazy. I'm not kidding. Let's unpack it. A study at the University of Maryland experimented with this protein in rat brains, and they found that when they added the protein, the rats became more talkative. What? They had more rat chatter, more conversations in rat language. And when they took the protein out, the rats became quieter. Now, animals can't fake findings. They don't have the same capacity for logical reasoning, metacognition, manipulation that humans do. Now, if you have a teenage girl, you know that the capacity for language use in that age demographic is 
totally off the charts. I can testify to that in our home. And even from early childhood, girls learn to speak earlier and more quickly than boys. They have larger vocabularies, greater sense variety. And one of the reasons is that the band of ten- the tissue that connects both hemispheres of the brain is thicker in women, which helps us to connect emotion to experience. You don't hear a lot about these studies today because gender differences have become highly political, but they're still real and scientifically valid. We'll talk a lot more about this topic in our upcoming episodes, but the point is this. Men and women both use many, many words per day. What's the collective impact of our linguistic output? What's the residue we're leaving behind from the powdery whisper or the bullet spray of our words? Strategic communication means honing our words for maximum impact. Let's talk first about the incredible brain inside of your head. The brain is what we call associational. At birth, the human brain is the least developed organ of the body. It has a hierarchy of systems at birth, like hemispheres and regions, but in order to reach its full development, it has to be socialized. The adult brain is made up of over 10 billion cells called neurons whose connective fibers wind 2 million miles in length. Now, each of these neurons is connected to others at a synapse where neurotransmitters, which are chemicals, are released, and that creates a mental process. These neurons are capable of neural firing patterns upwards of 10 to the millionth power. That's a lot of zeros. Can you envision the incredible potential resident within you right now at the very neural level? Now, in addition to the 10 billion neurons in your head, there are 100 trillion cells in the body, and virtually every one of those cells contains a genotype. That's the exact instructions for biological development that were replicated from the first phase of life, the zygote, that's the single cell. In other words, there's an instruction manual in your body. It was written there when your very first cell came to be, and then it was replicated, written on all other 100 trillion cells as each one of them was being formed. Just as Psalm 139 tells us, every day written for us was ordained before one of them came to be. Does God have a plan for you? Yes, and it's written on your DNA 100 trillion times. Let's take an example from the body to better understand the brain. When we don't use a muscle, what happens to it? It atrophies, it shrinks. Interestingly enough, the brain actually experiences a similar process. Throughout life, neurons that are unused experience a literal cellular decay. UCLA neuroscientist Dr. Dan Siegel says that, quote, a lack of use leads to impaired synaptic growth and a dying away process called pruning, where connections are lost and neurons themselves may die, end quote. In other words, what we feed grows, what we starve dies. How does the brain learn? This is an important concept for us in understanding the power of words. The brain is known as what's called an associational organ, and that means that experiences are embedded or housed in neural connections in the brain, which becomes memory, and the brain literally, quote, matches the present firing patterns with those of the past. There's an old saying in neuroscience that says, neurons that fire together, wire together. And that's actually the foundation behind commercial advertising. If a company can elicit a positive positive emotion from you as it displays its product on the screen, there will be a pleasurable connection formed between you and the product. At the neural level, our expectation of what's to come influences the reality of what is to come because of our interpretation, our lens. Siegel says the brain is, quote, an anticipation machine linking the present with what it expects in the future based on experiences in the past, end quote. In other words, what we believe about ourselves, others, and our world predisposes us not only to an interpretation of reality, but also to an adaptation of reality. 
Proverbs 11.25 says, 11.27, sorry, says, he who seeks good finds goodwill, but evil comes to him who searches for it. In that verse, did our thoughts or expectations change the outer world? Not at first. First, it changed our internal world, our paradigm, our interpretation of reality. Think about the definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. There's a mental posturing, an expectation, a belief, a hope that creates that evidence. Now, words have both a denotation, which is what we call a dictionary definition, and a connotation, which is the unique interpretation we assign to words based on our experience. The connotation derived from a word or an event is dependent on its mental connection to other events within our memory, real or imagined. For example, the word camping means living outdoors while on vacation, but that's just a dictionary definition, a denotation. There's also an individual connotation based on your paradigm, your experience. When I say camping, some people might think, ah, oh, relaxing night under the stars. And other people might think, ew, bugs, dirt, gross. You see how our mental association shapes our behavior? Let me give you a modern cultural example. The current generation of baby boomer Gen Xer parents have been called helicopter parents. What does a helicopter do? It hovers. Why? There's an expectation of fear, evil, an expectation of wrongdoing. How has this belief shaped our culture? Well, this is the most protected generation in history. The two youngest generations, millennials and Gen Zs, have never lived in a world without bike helmets, seat belts, even toilet seat covers. They've likely never eaten in a school cafeteria that served peanut butter or played on a sports team where only one person got a trophy. They're the most protected generation in history because of their parents' beliefs, their cognitive associations. Parents in those generations were exposed to all kinds of horror stories about potential predators and thus developed a more protective mentality. What we think about, concepts we associate together at the neural level, create our basic system of beliefs, which influences our behavior. With recent discoveries in the field of neuroscience, we now know far more about the capacity of the human brain than we've ever known before. There was this old classical argument that boxed us in and said we couldn't change or grow or learn new tricks beyond a certain age. Those have now been disproved. We now know that humans have the opportunity to experience growth and development throughout the whole lifespan, that our neural fibers are literally pruned and transformed according to the choices we make throughout our lives. Our brains literally literally forge new neural networks based on our mental associations. What we do externally, we become internally. The Apostle Paul told the Roman church in Romans 12, 2 to be, quote, transformed by the renewing of their minds. And we now know that this transformation is not only spiritual, but also physiological. Metamorpho, that's the Greek word where we get the word metamorphosis, which is like a complete and total change from a caterpillar to a butterfly. We're transformed by our thoughts, which become our words, which create ongoing behavioral choices. First the natural, then the spiritual. And if that's true in the negative, it's also true in the positive. In addition to being an associational organ, let's look at the second point. The brain is also a social organ that seeks out and engages in development with other people, other brains. God has literally wired us to be molded in the context of relationship. Our brain is wired for this, for interdependence. Listen to this powerful quote from a well-known neuroscientist. He says, the brain is, quote, genetically programmed to be social, hardwired to take in signals from the social environment to alter its own internal states. 
Now, within the context of association, our brain uses social relationships to formulate our paradigms, our worldview. Let's say, for example, that as a young girl, you believe that cohabitation was the best method to practice marriage. And let's say your first relationship was a mess. The guy was a selfish slob. Maybe he was abusive or non-committal, which is the stats for most cohabiting relationships. Uh, that's normally how they turn out to be. But what does your brain do when you meet the next guy? Your brain makes a prediction based on experience. This is a man. He must be a selfish slob. He must be abusive and non-committal. Your brain assigns a connotation to the man you don't even know based on your past experience with Ben, right? That's a paradigm. He who looks for evil will find it, Proverbs tells us. Now, the family is our very first community, and the relationships we establish there can color all other existing relationships, causing us to be either trusting or cynical. For example, when I say the words love, relationships, father, mother, family, home, discipline, you have an immediate thought pattern, a connotation for each one. In fact, I'd encourage you to just take a moment, pause, and write down some of the associations that come up for you with these words. Look at those. Is it possible that some of the associations that have taken root in your heart are faulty, that they're not based on truth? That is, is it possible you have an association based on socialization that maybe needs to be rewired or redefined? Most importantly, do you believe that this change is possible? Let's talk for a moment about the power of belief. What's a placebo? Maybe you've heard that word before. A placebo is a substance that contains no medicine, but is given to a patient for the positive psychological effect it may have because, listen to this, the patient believes that he or she is receiving treatment. Why do we use them in scientific trials? Well, we use them because what the mind believes can shape what the body does. Listen. Some people, when they take what they believe to be medicine, will be healed. Not because of the medicine, but because of the belief in the medicine. Wait, what? Let me say that again. Some people, when they take what they believe to be medicine, will be healed. Not because of the medicine, but because of the belief in the medicine. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Our words and belief have physiological impact. That is, they affect our bodies. Now, one of the most exciting discoveries in the realm of neuroscience in recent years is that of neural plasticity, that our neural, our neural connections respond to experiences during every span of life, which means that the human brain is continually experiencing, linking, adapting, and responding to life's challenges. Through these patterns, we continually reinforce what we believe to be true. We develop a paradigm, what Pierce calls, quote, the architecture of how we think, the scaffolding along which our thoughts run. Our paradigm is not easily recognized. One sociologist observed that a fish doesn't recognize the water it swims in. We're susceptible to blind spots, to delusion, whether individually or corporately. Author John Gardner once said that most ailing organizations have developed a functional blindness to their own defects. They're not suffering because they can't resolve their problems, but because they can't see their problems. Stephen Covey agreed in the eighth habit. He said, this transformation centers on far more than a new attitude. If you want to make minor incremental changes and improvements, work on practices, behavior, or attitude. But if you want to make significant quantum improvement, work on paradigms. What did Jesus say gives away our paradigm? What comes out of our mouth displays what's in our heart. He said it's not just a person caught in an act of ungodly behavior that's sinning, but even the way a person looks at someone else can be a sin. Why? 
because our thoughts form our words, our actions, our character. Our words are a mirror of the contents of our soul. Our inner man is being transformed daily for better or for worse. And finally, in addition to being associational and actively social, the brain is also autonomic, which means reflexive or involuntary. It creates autopilot functions based on our associational and social experiences. In fact, as much as 95% of our behavior is said to be habitual, and we only have a very small window of opportunity to step out of the rut of habit and into the stream of intentionality in order to foster change. If you've been living in the same house for a while, when you get into your car to drive there, you probably just click on autopilot. You probably don't make much of a conscious effort to turn right at the first light and then left at the second. Instead, you probably think about a million other things while your brain does what you've programmed it to do through your regular habit of driving home. Now, what happens when you move to a new house? You have to rethink the route, right? And sometimes you catch yourself driving to your old house out of habit, so you have to make a conscious effort to intervene on this autonomic behavior. If you've done that before, then you've experienced change, evidence of neuroplasticity that will build your confidence. Based on your associations, your brain will form connections, as we talked about uh, earlier with camping and commercials. What's both fascinating and frightening about these is how patterns can be adapted, assimilated, becoming a response that bypasses our conscious thought. Do you remember Ivan Pavlov? The, the guy who found that he could condition a dog to draw a mental connection between a sound and an unrelated object, creating a physical response. It's called classical conditioning. His dog started salivating at the sound of a bell because they associated it with food. The same way, even when we're unaware of it, our brain is taking in information and forming it, fashioning it, interpreting it, assimilating it. One fascinating component of this automatic function of our brain is this response that secular scientists call the lizard brain, where we have an instant physiological reaction to a perceived threat. It's a somatic memory of sorts where your body is interpreting reality based on a past experience. Fight or flight is one example, as is an intense startle reflex. The amygdala sends a message to your cortex, danger, danger. Your heart starts pounding, your hands start shaking, and a host of other physical reactions can occur based on what the brain believes to be happening. Not what is happening, mind you, but what the brain believes to be happening. Does our perception influence our physiological reality? Absolutely. As a two-time victim of violent crime, I've had to learn to override this reflex and begin reconnecting rational thought to life experiences. As a result, I've experienced a physiological change, a neural change that I can see in the disappearance of formerly intense things like the startle reflex, elevated heart rate, and other symptoms that used to appear. Whereas before, I would have been able to feel my heart pounding wildly when faced with situations similar to those where tragedies occurred, today my body is overriding those responses because my brain is reconnecting the neural network, reconditioning the thought patterns that lead to observable behavior. Whether it's the fears of childhood like drains, darkness, spiders, or adulthood, I'll talk more about those fears in the next episode, these physiological responses can represent something to us, a hint of the secret world of our neural connections, our autonomic behavior. Our continual habits define us, and to change them, we must dissolve the connecting patterns that cause us to expect and connect information and experiences in certain ways. This reflexive behavior does not have to rule and reign in your life. How do I know that you're capable of personal transformation? How do I know that you can shape culture both within and without? How do I know that there's tremendous potential resting within you at this very moment? Because I know your father and I know you are made in your father's image. 
Knowledge is only power if we put some muscle into it. How do we move from knowledge to action? It starts with faith. If we view the human condition as inherently hopeless, then our survival will depend on prisons, psychologists, pharmaceutical companies. But if we view the human condition as hopeful, then the power of transformation rests within each of us as we commit to spurring one another on to good deeds and good works in the context of community, of relationship. You see, positionally, God's given you victory, but now it's time to roll up our sleeves and take an active role in our own transformation. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, the sin that so easily entangles us. Many of us have been clinging to that steel girder and calling out to God for years. Oh Lord, would you break up the crusty ground around her heart? Would you solve this problem or that problem? Would you heal this situation? God says, okay, here are the tools. Dig in. Now, if you're too spiritually malnourished to pick up the spade right now, then I believe God will meet you where you are. But the ultimate goal is for you to take the tools he's provided and apply them to your life. He created you to rule and to reign in your respective domain. And we don't begin to rule and reign effectively in his kingdom if we haven't learned to rule and reign over our own kingdoms, our own temples, our own families. There's an important order of events here, and many a young leader in training has been frustrated when the foundational skills needed for success, quote, out there, were never developed, quote, in here, you know, inside of us, in our own realm of influence. Building greater emotional health and relational resilience begins with strategic communication. Today, we've marveled at the human brain and we've seen its capacity for growth, change, and influence. Humans have the capacity to change and grow throughout our entire lives. And choosing to change begins with a seed of communication. Being effective as a communicator takes intentionality. And as strategic communicators, our action step today is to monitor the residue our words leave behind, both in our minds and in the lives of others within our realm of influence. Let's take that first step today by developing new patterns that will build the scaffolding we need to become a communication architect. After every episode, I want to encourage you in two arenas of processing, reflection and connection. Take some time to think about what you've heard and then talk with someone you trust about your action steps. This will get you the most traction in your journey to building greater emotional health and relational resilience. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at communicationarchitect or via email to communicationarchitect at drlisadunn.com. Don't miss the next episode where we'll be unpacking the war of words, how to deal with words that are intended to destroy, deceive, or desensitize us. Remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and I look forward to talking with you again next time right here on The Communication Architect. Communication Architect.